Section 1 of Sherman's Military Lessons of the American Civil War from his Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Sherman's Military Lessons of the American Civil War from his Memoirs by William Tecumseh Sherman. Chapter 25 Conclusion Military Lessons of the War section one having thus recorded a summary of events mostly under my own personal supervision during the years from eighteen forty six to eighteen sixty five it seems proper that i should add an opinion of some of the useful military lessons to be derived therefrom that civil war by reason of the existence of slavery was apprehended by most of the leading statesmen of the half-century preceding its outbreak is a matter of notoriety general scott told me on my arrival at new york as early as eighteen fifty that the country was on the eve of civil war and the southern politicians openly asserted that it was their purpose to accept as a casus belli the election of general fremont in eighteen fifty six but fortunately or unfortunately he was beaten by mr buchanan which simply postponed its occurrence for four years mr seward had also publicly declared that no government could possibly exist half slave and half free yet the government made no military preparation and the northern people generally paid no attention took no warning of its coming and would not realize its existence till fort sumter was fired on by batteries of artillery handled by declared enemies from the surrounding islands and from the city of charleston general bragg who certainly was a man of intelligence and who in early life ridiculed a thousand times in my hearing the threats of the people of south carolina to secede from the federal union said to me in new orleans in february eighteen sixty one that he was convinced that the feeling between the slave and free states had become so embittered that it was better to part in peace better to part anyhow and as a separation was inevitable that the south should begin at once because the possibility of a successful effort was yearly lessened by the rapid and increasing inequality between the two sections from the fact that all the european immigrants were coming to the northern states and territories and none to the southern the slave population in eighteen sixty was near four millions and the money value thereof not far from twenty five hundred million dollars now ignoring the moral side of the question a cause that endangered so vast a moneyed interest was an adequate cause of anxiety and preparation and the northern leaders surely ought to have foreseen the danger and prepared for it after the election of mr lincoln in eighteen sixty there was no concealment of the declaration and preparation for war in the south in louisiana as i have related men were openly enlisted officers were appointed and war was actually begun in january eighteen sixty one the forts at the mouth of the mississippi were seized and occupied by garrisons that hauled down the united states flag and hoisted that of the state the United States arsenal at Baton Rouge was captured by New Orleans militia, its garrison ignominiously sent off, and the contents of the arsenal distributed. These were as much acts of war as was the subsequent firing on Fort Sumter, yet no public notice was taken thereof. 
and when months afterward i came north i found not one single sign of preparation it was for this reason somewhat that the people of the south became convinced that those of the north were pusillanimous and cowardly and the southern leaders were thereby enabled to commit their people to the war nominally in defence of their slave property up to the hour of the firing on fort sumter in april eighteen sixty one it does seem to me that our public men our politicians were blamable for not sounding the note of alarm then when war was actually begun it was by a call for seventy five thousand ninety day men i suppose to fill mr seward's prophecy that the war would last but ninety days the earlier steps by our political government were extremely wavering and weak for which an excuse can be found in the fact that many of the southern representatives remained in congress sharing in the public councils and influencing legislation but as soon as mr lincoln was installed there was no longer any reason why congress and the cabinet should have hesitated they should have measured the cause provided the means and left the executive to apply the remedy at the time of mr lincoln's inauguration viz march fourth eighteen sixty one the regular army by law consisted of two regiments of dragoons two regiments of cavalry one regiment of mounted rifles four regiments of artillery and ten regiments of infantry admitting of an aggregate strength of thirteen thousand and twenty-four officers and men on the subsequent fourth of may the president by his own orders afterward sanctioned by congress added a regiment of cavalry a regiment of artillery and eight regiments of infantry which with the former army admitted of a strength of thirty nine thousand nine hundred and seventy three but at no time during the war did the regular army attain a strength of twenty five thousand men to the new regiments of infantry was given an organization differing from any that had heretofore prevailed in this country of three battalions of eight companies each but at no time did more than one of these regiments attain its full standard nor in the vast army of volunteers that was raised during the war were any of the regiments of infantry formed on the three battalion system but these were universally single battalions of ten companies so that on the reorganization of the regular army at the close of the war congress adopted the form of twelve companies for the regiments of cavalry and artillery and that of three companies for the infantry which is the present standard inasmuch as the regular army will naturally form the standard of organization or for new regiments of volunteers it becomes important to study this subject in the light of past experience and to select that form which is best for peace as well as war a cavalry regiment is now composed of twelve companies usually divided into six squadrons of two companies each or better subdivided into three battalions of four companies each this is an excellent form easily admitting of subdivision as well as union into larger masses a single battalion of four companies with a field officer will compose a good body for a garrison for a separate expedition or for a detachment and in war three regiments would compose a good brigade three brigades a division and three divisions a strong cavalry corps such as was formed and fought by general sheridan and wilson during the war 
in the artillery arm the officers differ widely in their opinion of the true organization a single company forms a battery and habitually each battery acts separately though sometimes several are united or massed but these always act in concert with cavalry or infantry nevertheless the regimental organization for artillery has always been maintained in this country for classification and promotion twelve companies compose a regiment and though probably no colonel ever commanded his full regiment in the form of twelve batteries yet in peace they occupy our heavy sea-coast forts or act as infantry then the regimental organization is both necessary and convenient but the infantry composes the great mass of all armies and the true form of the regiment or unit has been the subject of infinite discussion and as i have stated during the civil war the regiment was a single battalion of ten companies in olden times the regiment was composed of eight battalion companies and two flank companies the first and tenth companies were armed with rifles and were styled and used as skirmishers but during the war they were never used exclusively for that special purpose and in fact no distinction existed between them and the other eight companies the ten-company organization is awkward in practice, and I am satisfied that the infantry regiment should have the same identical organization as exists for the cavalry and artillery, viz. twelve companies, so as to be susceptible of division into three battalions of four companies each. These companies should habitually be about a hundred one men strong, giving twelve hundred to a regiment, which in practice would settle down to about one thousand men. Three such regiments would compose a brigade, three brigades a division, and three divisions a corps. Then, by allowing to an infantry corps a brigade of cavalry and six batteries of field artillery, we would have an efficient corps d'armée of thirty thousand men, whose organization would be simple and most efficient, and whose strength should never be allowed to fall below twenty-five thousand men. The corps is the true unit for grand campaigns and battle, should have a full and perfect staff, and everything requisite for separate action, ready at all times to be detached and sent off for any nature of service. The general in command should have the rank of lieutenant-general, and should be, by experience and education, equal to anything in war. Habitually with us he was a major-general, specially selected and assigned to the command by an order of the President, constituting, in fact, a separate grade the division is the unit of administration and is the legitimate command of a major-general the brigade is the next subdivision and is commanded by a brigadier-general the regiment is the family the colonel as the father should have a personal acquaintance with every officer and man and should instill a feeling of pride and affection for himself so that his officers and men would naturally look to him for personal advice and instruction in war the regiment should never be subdivided but should always be maintained entire in peace this is impossible the company is the true unit of discipline and the captain is the company a good captain makes a good company and he should have the power to reward as well as punish 
the fact that soldiers would naturally like to have a good fellow for their captain is the best reason why he should be appointed by the colonel or by some superior authority instead of being elected by the men in the united states the people are the sovereign all power originally proceeds from them and therefore the election of officers by the men is the common rule this is wrong because an army is not a popular organization but an animated machine an instrument in the hands of the executive for enforcing the law and maintaining the honor and dignity of the nation and the president as the constitutional commander-in-chief of the army and navy should exercise the power of appointment subject to the confirmation of the senate of the officers of volunteers as well as of regulars no army can be efficient unless it be a unit for action and the power must come from above not from below the president usually delegates his power to the commander-in-chief and he to the next and so on down to the lowest actual commander of troops however small the detachment no matter how troops come together when once united the highest officer in rank is held responsible and should be consequently armed with the fullest power of the executive subject only to law and existing orders the more simple the principle the greater the likelihood of determined action and the less a commanding officer is circumscribed by bounds or by precedent the greater is the probability that he will make the best use of his command and achieve the best results the regular army and the military academy at west point have in the past provided and doubtless will in the future provide an ample supply of good officers for future wars but should their numbers be insufficient we can always safely rely on the great number of young men of education and force of character throughout the country to supplement them at the close of our civil war lasting four years some of our best corps and division generals as well as staff officers were from civil life but i cannot recall any of the most successful who did not express a regret that he had not received in early life instruction in the elementary principles of the art of war instead of being forced to acquire this knowledge in the dangerous and expensive school of actual war but the vital difficulty was and will be again to obtain an adequate number of good soldiers we tried almost every system known to modern nations all with more or less success voluntary enlistments the draft and bought substitutes and i think that all officers of experience will confirm my assertion that the men who voluntarily enlisted at the outbreak of the war were the best better than the conscript and far better than the bought substitute when a regiment is once organized in a state and mustered into the service of the united states the officers and men become subject to the same laws of discipline and government as the regular troops they are in no sense militia but compose a part of the army of the united states only retain their state title for convenience and yet may be principally recruited from the neighborhood of their original organization once organized the regiment should be kept full by recruits and when it becomes difficult to obtain more recruits the pay should be raised by congress instead of tempting new men by exaggerated bounties 
i believe it would have been more economical to have raised the pay of the soldier to thirty or even fifty dollars a month than to have held out the promise of three hundred and even six hundred dollars in the form of bounty toward the close of the war i have often heard the soldiers complain that the stay-at-home men got better pay bounties and food than they who were exposed to all the dangers and vicissitudes of the battles and marches at the front the feeling of the soldier should be that in every event the sympathy and preference of his government is for him who fights rather than for him who is on provost or guard duty to the rear and like most men he measures this by the amount of pay of course the soldier must be trained to obedience and should be content with his wages but whoever has commanded an army in the field knows the difference between a willing contented mass of men and one that feels a cause of grievance there is a soul to an army as well as to the individual man and no general can accomplish the full work of his army unless he commands the soul of his men as well as their bodies and legs the greatest mistake made in our civil war was in the mode of recruitment and promotion when a regiment became reduced by the necessary wear and tear of service instead of being filled up at the bottom and the vacancies among the officers filled from the best non-commissioned officers and men the habit was to raise new regiments with new colonels captains and men leaving the old and experienced battalions to dwindle away into mere skeleton organizations i believe with the volunteers this matter was left to the state exclusively and i remember that wisconsin kept her regiments filled with recruits whereas other states generally filled their quotas by new regiments and the result was that we estimated a wisconsin regiment equal to an ordinary brigade i believe that five hundred new men added to an old and experienced regiment were more valuable than a thousand men in the form of a new regiment for the former by association with good experienced captains lieutenants and non-commissioned officers soon became veterans whereas the latter were generally unavailable for a year the german method of recruitment is simply perfect and there is no good reason why we should not follow it substantially on a road marching by the flank it would be considered good order to have five thousand men to a mile so that a full corps of thirty thousand men would extend six miles but with the average trains and batteries of artillery the probabilities are that it would draw out to ten miles on a long and regular march the divisions and brigades should alternate in the lead the leading division should be on the road by the earliest dawn and march at the rate of about two miles or at most two and a half miles an hour so as to reach camp by noon even then the rear divisions and trains will hardly reach camp much before night theoretically a marching column should preserve such order that by simply halting and facing to the right or left it would be in line of battle but this is rarely the case and generally deployments are made forward by conducting each brigade by the flank obliquely to the right or left to its approximate position in line of battle and there deployed in such a line of battle a brigade of three thousand infantry would occupy a mile of front 
but for a strong line of battle five thousand men with two batteries should be allowed to each mile or a division would habitually constitute a double line with skirmishers and a reserve on a mile of front End of section one.